The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Diane Meyer, MD. Diane's the director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, a national organization devoted to increasing access to palliative care in the United States. Under her leadership, the number of palliative care programs in U.S. hospitals has more than tripled in the last decade. She's also co-director of the Patty and J. Baker National Palliative Care Center, vice chair for public policy and professor of geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, Catherine Gaisman, Professor of Medical Ethics, and was founder and director of the Hertzberg Palliative Care Institute from 1997 to 2011, and all of those are at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. She's received numerous awards, including the 2008 MacArthur Fellowship, a $500,000 no-strings-attached award for individuals whose work has shown exceptional creativity and promise. She's a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences and was named one of 20 people to make healthcare better in the U.S. by Health Leaders Media 2010. Also received an honorary doctorate of science from Oberlin College in 2010. In 2012, she received American Cancer Society's Medal of Honor for Cancer Control in recognition of her pioneering leadership in bringing non-hospice palliative care into mainstream medicine and received the American Geriatric Society Edward Henderson State-of-the-Art Lecture Award in 2013. Other honors, honors include the Open Society Institute Faculty Scholars Award of the Project on Death in America, the Founders Award of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization 2007, AARP's 50th Anniversary Social Impact Award 2008, Castle Connolly's Physician of the Year Award 2009, and the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine Lifetime Achievement Award 2009. She's the principal investigator and an, of an NCI-funded five-year multi-site study on the outcomes of hospital palliative care services in cancer patients, 
Very excited about that. Dr. Meyer served as a Columbia University Health and Aging Policy Fellow in Washington, D.C. from 2009 to 10, working on the Senate's Help Committee and in the Department of Health and Human Services. And that barely scratches the surface, but I want to leave some time for us to talk. Welcome, I Diane. I can't believe you read all <laughs> I want people to know how really important you are in this field of palliative care, which, of course, as someone who works with cancer myself, just such a very, very, very important um, aspect of caring for people who are ill. So I really wanted people to have a sense of how woven into that field you are. Thank you very much. Um, In reading a chapter you wrote for the book Palliative Care, which, of course, you also edited, Transforming the Care of the Serious Ill, of, of the seriously ill <laughs> or serious illness, I really liked where you started. You said, um, the constants of the human condition are life and death, something that is too rarely said in medical uh, fields, I, I believe. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, I do agree with that. Um, you know, in fact, the whole modern medical edifice is devoted, whether consciously or not, to um, what is obviously going to be a futile attempt to eliminate death. Um, But actually, if you read at the NIH, if you go on the NIH website, the National Institutes of Health, which is a multi-billion dollar taxpayer-funded effort to do research on disease, and you read what the various institutes have as their mission, it is basically eliminating diseases that lead to death as if somehow that that is even possible or desirable. Um, because if people were to live forever, um, I think we should pause to think about what the consequences what would the conse- be. Yeah, absolutely. To us, to our society, to our children, to our grandchildren, it's actually not a good thing to eliminate death from the human condition as... Um, when you pause and think about it from the big picture, yet all, almost all the research dollars that are invested in the U.S. are towards the elimination of disease rather uh, than allocating some of it towards the relief of suffering associated with disease. Um, and that's a big gap. Absolutely. And, and I would even say, you know, I, I work for the Women's Cancer Resource Center. One of the things I do is, is uh, lead groups there and, and run a continuing education program. And, of course, the, um, the advances have helped people. But what I find is that there is very little done to prepare people for when those advances no longer help. And uh, exactly. I think, I, you know, I think it would help if if people in your field got connected with people with cancer, in particular, right from the start. When that's right. true, it seems to go so much better. Can you talk about what makes things better when someone has palliative care from the start? Yeah, uh, there are now probably a total of six or seven different well-designed studies that show that cancer patients who receive palliative care from the point of diagnosis at the same time as they get best cancer treatment, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, whatever may be recommended, not only feel better um, from a pain, depression, 
energy, sleep, quality of life standpoint, they live significantly longer than people who only get the cancer care. And I think it took people a while to understand why that might be, what might be the mechanism for palliative care actually helping people live longer. Yes, we understand Mm -hmm. it helps people live better, but we didn't use to think that it also helped people to live longer. And while we, I wouldn't say we have 100% certainty on why um, receiving palliative care at the same time as cancer treatment helps you live longer, there are a couple of top candidates for that mechanism. And I'd say the first one is avoiding the hospital. Mm. So people who are getting palliative care at the same time as disease treatment get their symptoms managed and their families supported so that predictable crises, whether pain crises or shortness of breath crises or uh, bowel crises or family caregiver overwhelmed crises are prevented. And when those things are prevented and people don't have to go to the hospital, they then are not exposed to all the infection risk and adverse event risk that is so common in the hospital. Um, And adverse events and infections, if you or I went to the hospital, we're basically healthy and we got a hospital-acquired infection, we could probably survive that. Right. If you are a cancer patient uh, receiving treatment and your immune system is compromised and you get a bad infection in the hospital, you are likely to die. So I think a major piece of the survival benefit with palliative care has to do with getting the support you need to avoid calling 911, avoid the Mm. emergency room, avoid the hospital. But other reasons are that If your pain is controlled, if your depression is treated, if you feel like the things that are worrying you the most are questions that can be asked and can be answered, if you feel like your family who's taking care of you is also getting help and support, I think people have much more of a will to live because there's something to live for. Whereas when people are suffering terribly, either with pain or other symptoms or depression, they give up. You know, I I ran across a very intense example of that. I was doing home visits for our volunteer program, and we met with this lovely woman who was uh, who had a treatable form of cancer. And as we were talking with her, she said, "I don't have enough support. I'm thinking of just suspending the treatment because um, I don't have I don't have the tools. I'm I'm spending all my time." you know, trying to get what I need, and it's just, I'm exhausted. I can't do it right. anymore. Right. It, was such a, it, it was such a stunning example. Yeah. And it what wasn't that expect? she had no one in her life. It was that she didn't have anyone capable of doing what needed to be done or who had right. the information. Right. And it's, it's kind of shocking how often even people we think of as best able to negotiate the healthcare system, you know, people with graduate degrees, other doctors, people with doctors in the family, how difficult it is to get what you need in this very broken, impenetrable system. Mm-hmm. You leave messages, no one calls back. You, um, you need a refill on a medication, no one calls back. Um, the doctor you left the message for is on vacation. The coverage doesn't call back. 
If you have a problem after 5 o'clock and you call your doctor, you will always get a tape that says if this is a medical emergency, hang up now and call 911. So people do exactly as they're told and hang up and call 911 because the system basically abandons people. And it's very hard to negotiate all that is demanded of you by our healthcare system, even if you're healthy and doing it on behalf of a loved one. Um, but if you're sick and exhausted and worried and uh, struggling with symptoms and side effects, it, the deck is really stacked against you. Just on the chance that there's anyone listening, and there might be, um, who doesn't quite understand what palliative care does and what the difference is between palliative care and hospice, uh, could you could you talk about that a little bit? Because we're talking about, obviously, people in treatment. It's not a hospice situation. Right. And I think many people are confused that palliative care is possible in those circumstances, you know, just um, just what the parameters are. Can you go into Absolutely. that a bit? I'm really glad you asked because I was going to bring it up if you didn't. Um, and I still talk to lots of doctors and nurses who are confused about this, so um, that's probably why the public is confused. Because, <laughs> Could be. <laughs> because we are. Um, so hospice is a form of palliative care, but it is limited by law, by Medicare law, to people who are going to die soon, within a few months, and people who have decided to give up disease treatment. So as you can see, that applies to a very small group of patients, right? People who are clearly at the end of their life, which is very hard to know as both doctor and patient, and also people who are have chosen not to pursue treatment. Um, and most people benefit from treatment. Um, various kinds of treatment, really very uh, close to the end of their life because the treatment, while it may not be curative, it may relieve the burden of, for example, of the tumor. It may reduce swelling. It may reduce the size of the tumor. It may re- uh, restore energy, reduce pain. So just sure. because the treatment is not curative doesn't mean it is not beneficial. Um, but under the hospice benefit, you have to sign away your right to insurance coverage for that treatment in order mm. to receive hospice. The result of those restrictions is that most people get hospice for a very, very short time, less than a week or two on average. Um, and palliative care as a field grew up to fill that gap, recognizing that most people with serious illness are not dying, A, B, mm-hmm. are continuing to to benefit from disease treatment, but C, have a very high disease burden and treatment burden. So they have pain and other symptoms from the disease itself, and they have really bad side effects from the treatments. So they need help with the relief of pain, symptoms, and stress of the illness. They need help understanding what to expect and what their options are and the pros and cons of the different treatment options. And they need help making the best decisions for themselves and their loved ones in the context of what is most important to them. And that doesn't happen in our healthcare system without the added layer of support that palliative care brings. So palliative care teams, which are usually made up of doctors, nurses, and social workers, work alongside of and to support your treating physician. 
whether that person is an oncologist or a cardiologist or a GP, whatever your main doctor is, we don't take over for that person. We work alongside that person and focus on the things that contribute to the best possible quality of life for the patient and the patient's family while the treating physician focuses on the disease. So it's a team approach. And it, there's no, you don't have to be dying. You don't have to have an incurable illness. And for, I can give you an example of a 30-year-old that we took care of recently who just after she finished her medicine residency and delivered her first baby, um, two weeks later became very short of breath and was diagnosed uh, to her great shock and distress with a lymphoma, a cancer in her, in her chest, and went to New York City's best cancer hospital to get treatment. And while talking with the doctor who was going to treat her, he said, do you have any questions? And she said, I assume that you guys have palliative care as part of your team. And the oncologist said to her, oh, you don't need that. You're not dying. Because oh my the oncologist goodness. didn't understand this. And what mm-hmm. she had to do was get her palliative care at the hospital she trained at, which is where she learned that palliative care was critical for seriously ill patients pursuing treatment, um, and get her cancer treatment at the cancer hospital. And she actually testified in front of a congressional hearing a few months ago to talk about how she would not be standing in front of them today alive had she not had palliative care at the same time as this very, very difficult cancer treatment that she went through. And I would say that's um, uh, fairly universal. You know, if I am doing groups for women with cancer, let's say, the people mm-hmm. have the, the people who have gotten that kind of care, however they got it, whether by their own instigation or because it was recommended, do astronomically better. Astronomically. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just yeah. no comparison. And yeah. not only that, but I think they do better post-treatment in dealing with the emotional effects of having gone through the experience. Yeah, just so much better. It's emotional effects. It's the long-term consequences of chemo and radiation, which, while it may have given you more time, leaves its footprint behind. So we have patients who have very significant nerve injury pain, neuropathic pain it's called, um, who have no cancer but are disabled from pain associated with the chemotherapy for the cancer. And we take care of those people as well. So, um, yeah, it's not about prognosis. It's not about how long you're going to live. It's about need. Absolutely. Um, I would personally love it if people just, if it was just assumed that 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 department walks with you through any serious illness. It just makes such a difference. So I'm well, a, I'm, a de- I'm a devotee <laughs> for sure. It should be assumed. It should be, as we say, the standard of practice, and that's what we're Abs- trying to absolutely. Get when we come back, I want to talk some about what inspired you towards this work what what grabbed you about it um because you've been doing it with great passion for a long time and i want to talk some about that um in a few minutes when we come back and listeners you can find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america uh to 
find my my email contact too and my website all at good grief at voice america and to find diane meyer you can go to www.capc.org the website of the center to advance palliative care be back soon your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness relationship issues anxious parenting challenges no more learn how to live your best life tune into straight talk with top psychotherapist relationship and anxiety expert sandra reish In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Diane Meyer, a leader in the field of palliative care, who has advanced its use dramatically through the organization she directs, the Center to Advance Palliative Care. And I also wanted to mention there's another place where consumers can go to find her, which is www.getpalliativecare.org. That's a very good resource. So, um, um you know, be be sure and check that out, um, Diane. I maybe because of the of the um, focus of this show, which is how we how we change through exposure to loss and trauma, and sometimes find our deepest callings that way. Um, I know one aspect of how you came to this work. Uh, you mentioned uh, a very early experience with someone. Um, in your in your internship who uh, was kept alive and and kind of the trauma of that but I wondered what else has um, fed you in this work what what drew you to it what made you because it's not what many medical people are drawn to right although I would say that that is changing 20 years ago, there was no field of palliative care or palliative medicine. It wasn't an option. You could not train in the specialty. You could not work in it. So there was no role model or pathway, you know, that if you build it, they will come thing. So more recently, and this is really in the last, only in the last seven or eight years, palliative care is now a specialty in medicine, in nursing, in social work. And people can go on and get additional training and become board certified in the field. And what's and where they train, most most young 
doctors and nurses train in hospitals. And the great majority of hospitals where people train have palliative care teams. And what that's doing is exposing the next generation to what palliative care can do to relieve human suffering and to support patients and families. And increasingly, we're seeing young people who, coming right out of training, are, are deciding to specialize in palliative care because now they can. When I was in training, that wasn't an option. So, um, actually, we're finding more and more people wanting to do this work, and I'll tell you why people want to do it, because most people go into medicine and nursing to help people. That mm. actually, it sounds idealistic, but it's true. This is why people enter the medical and the nursing profession, for yes. the most part. And then they go through many years of training that works really hard to beat that out of you, um, mm. to where you're pressured to see one patient every five minutes, you're pressured to, if you're an intern or a resident, to admit 10 or 15 patients in one night yourself. The time pressures, the volume pressures, um, the turnover pressures, basically beat the crap out of people who came to the field for all the right reasons, because they wanted to help people. And when they then see a specialty where that's what you do all day, you actually listen to the patient and family, ask what matters most to them, ask what their greatest concerns are, ask what you can do to help them, and you can help them. You can solve their problems. (laughs) You can relieve their pain. You can take care of the depression. You can find resources to support the patient and family at home. You can answer questions they've been afraid to ask or that their doctors have dismissed. We can help so much. It is so gratifying and so rewarding to be actually able to help people in such a profound way. So most people in our field love the work, um, are really happy and satisfied with their job, And if you contrast that to doctors and nurses in other parts of medicine, there's an epidemic of burnout, early retirement, substance abuse, alcoholism. People feel like they're not helping people. Mm. And they're really struggling with trying to find meaning and purpose in their lives in healthcare because the the system is very broken for patients and families. But the flip side of that coin is the system is very broken for doctors and nurses, too. Um, that that so that, resonates with me, what you're saying. I, I'm thinking of a particular client of mine who uh, came because she had cancer, but she was a physician, and we, she had to relearn how to be tired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she did not know. She had no mechanism in her body for exhaustion. Right. Because it wasn't allowed. Uh, it, it was just completely cut out. It was so staggering to me. And, of course, it was really important. She needed to rest. She needed to, right. you know, <laughs> take care of her body. But she really didn't have the wiring anymore. Well, uh, we're taught that only a wimp doesn't come to work when they're sick. You know, I mean, it's like a warrior mentality. You don't want to abandon your people, so you come to work even if you're sick which, of course, is the worst possible thing you can do because you get everyone else sick. But it, that is the ethos of it. It's like I'm tough and I'm going to work through whatever fact that I haven't slept all night, no problem. You know, I'm tough, I can handle it. And, it, of course, when you treat young physicians and nurses in training that way, 
that indifference to their own suffering, that indifference to their own needs, starts to spill over. Um, How, when do you think it? It you know it's cert- when I when I think of how we were taught to see doctors when I was a little kid. I'm in my early 60s. You know, benevolent, patient, listening. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. that was kind of the the um, what we were taught to expect of a doctor, well, right? That's actually how do you what- think it? That's it what I got from to... my pediatrician, and I'm the same age as you. That uh-huh. is actually, actually what I remember about the kind of primary care I got as a child and a teenager. Um, and so, so do you think it's hospital care we're talking about, or do you think that medicine changed well, somehow? I, well, what changed is, first of all, that the best and the brightest all became subspecialists, cardiologists, oncologists, gastroenterologists lung specialists. Very, it, it was no longer considered to be an intellectually respectable thing to do to be a primary care doctor. In the, and that started in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And it is still the case that medical students are tremendously pressured to choose a subspecialty for training and not to stop and become a general practitioner or a primary care person because it is considered within the academic culture, which is where all of all doctors and nurses get their training, it's considered to be somehow less than. That did not used to be the case. So it takes the unusual person who says, no, I went into medicine to help people. I'm going to be a family practitioner so I can really be connected to my patients and their families and my community. That is that is a rare decision on the part of medical students today. And so that's where, that's what happened to the um, sort of doctor knows best uh, old vision that was actually real 50 or 60 years ago. It's not, it's not there anymore. And I think the other reason that things have changed is healthcare has become so expensive I was going to bring up money any second now. <laughs> a drug is so expensive that clinicians are under tremendous pressure to see numbers of patients per day or per hour that are completely impossible in terms of delivering high-quality, caring medical care. And yet we are salaried, right? We're salaried by a hospital. We're salaried by a group practice. Um, and if we don't keep up with those volume numbers, we get fired. Mm. And so these are the system pressures that are perfectly designed to get the horrible care that most people now get and to also yes. lead to this epidemic of burnout and depression among physicians. Um, you know, most people in practice today say they, say they are telling their kids not to go into medicine and looking at retiring earlier. I'm thinking of my niece. She is currently a resident in um, pediatrics. Her fiancé is a resident in urology. Um, She's going to have a very, very hard time paying back her debt. He's not going to have a hard time paying back his debt. (laughs) You know, so I think there's there's also the 
the personal impact of your own personal finances unless you have the money to pay outright for all the right. education. Well, and the education, the, the average debt for a medical student in the United States today, average is $180,000. But in Staggering, people, isn't it? Yeah, for people who go to non-state medical schools, private medical schools like Mount Sinai or Harvard or others, the debt is closer to $400,000. Now, imagine you graduate from medical school. You are now 25 or 26 years old, right? So while most of your friends are out there working their first or second job, you're still in training, and now you've got to do more training, right? Now you've got to do internship and residency, which is three or four years, and then most people go on to do subspecialty training in a fellowship. So by the time you're done with your training, you're in your early 30s. And you've if you paid, go straight you have through. not been paid a living wage that whole time. Mm-hmm. So you, you get paid, you know, 50000 60000 70000 at most during training. And then you get out and you've got $400,000 in debt at an age when you're supposed to be getting married settling down, having children, buying a house, and you are saddled with the suffocating debt. So what happens? People end up working for money, like in specialties that pay a lot of money. This is the most popular specialties for medical students today are dermatology and plastic surgery. Mm. Why? You can work reasonable hours and make three-quarters of a million dollars per year. And pay sure. back your loans. So sure. the system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets, which is that no one who's not independently wealthy can do primary care because they will never pay back their loans. Now, your niece, good for her to be hooked up with a surgeon because he's going to be able to pay back her loans <laughs> as yeah. well as his. She's, she's absolutely oblivious to the money aspect of that, but yes, that is fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Like, if, if at 40 you're still several hundred thousand dollars in debt, how do you save money for retirement? How do you put your own kids through school? So that's the reality of the current situation, and it's appalling, but it explains a lot of what's so broken with the healthcare system. In other developed nations like Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, medical school is free. You don't have to be wealthy to go to medical school. Yeah. Um, and because it's, it's felt to be a public good. And it's felt that people from all walks and classes of life should have access to medical school training to become a physician if they can, you know, if they're smart enough, if they can pass the tests. But it, money shouldn't be the barrier. Ability should be the barrier. So in a way, I feel we're, we're circling around to a real, really inviting thing to uh, an inviting message for people about palliative care. That if you go to a palliative care department, if you access that service, it stands to reason you're going to encounter people who really want to be doing it. Yep. <laughs> you know, right. who really want to be easing the road of navigating the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Because there's absolutely no other incentive to do it other than a deep desire to do it. Right. I mean, it's certainly not a way to get rich, I'll tell you that. But it (laughs) is a way to 
have enormous job satisfaction and to feel like you are doing meaningful work that makes a difference for people every single day. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more rewarding. You know, that is more rewarding than money. So, um, I, again, you know, we have all these highly paid cardiologists and oncologists who are depressed and burned out because that sense of being able to help people is really at risk in the current system. Yes. And and even uh, I interviewed Michael Fradkin a few weeks ago um, who was talking about a program he's developing, Resolution Care, to get give part of the hospice services and palliative care services he offers to do it remotely right. um, by video. And the reason he got into that was his own burnout. So, you know, sometimes it's also you can burn out in any profession because the demands are so, so high. Um, and I think that's a big part of what, the people that I'm working with, the people who are receiving the care, are often experiencing very stressed out um, medical care providers. And so it's it's that, of that interest to all of us. Yeah, that observation is correct. You know, many patients and families won't ask challenging questions of their physician or their nurse practitioner because they can see how totally overwhelmed and stressed that person is. They've sat in the waiting room. They've seen how many people are waiting. They know the doctor is four patients behind. They're not going to ask a question about, you know, how long do you think I have, doctor, or what do you think is going to be the benefit of this treatment as compared to other treatments. Patients can see with their own two eyes that their doctor is, you know, on the verge. Yes. So they don't want to make things harder for him or her. So they and, don't yes, and cancer diagnosis doesn't come along with um, completed assertiveness training either. No, you know, <laughs> we're not all great at, at advocating for ourselves. Period. Let alone in a situation where we're so vulnerable. So I think that exactly. factors in too from the patient end. Exactly. And so. Um, I'm I, I'm an optimist, so I'm always looking at the way through, you know, <laughs> the way yeah. forward. Um, are there are there hospitals in which you can reliably expect that if you get a serious diagnosis, you will you will um, have a visit? Not just you know, hey, there's this thing palliative care, but they will actually say, I'm setting you up for a visit with palliative care. Uh, tomorrow, or you know, is that is that it's, it's, is that integration it's variable? It's Hi. very, very variable, and that's why I told you the story of my colleague, the thirty-year-old with a new baby, mm-hmm. who, had she not insisted on getting palliative care at the same time as her treatment, would not have received it. Now she was in a very unusual situation. She is a doctor. She just finished her training in a hospital that had a very well-integrated palliative care program, and she knew she could not go through what this treatment would put her through, and she knew what it involved because she'd done it to other people without palliative care. So the reason I'm telling this story is so that your audience can advocate for itself the same as she did. So she didn't take no for an answer. She said, I'm not going to go through this without having palliative care to support me. And since the cancer hospital couldn't provide her 
with that level of concurrent at the same time support, she found it at the hospital she trained at, which is in the same city. But I, I guess the meta message is to patients and families, when the last thing you feel like doing is being assertive and speaking up for yourself and demanding what you need, that is the thing you have to do. Because the system is designed so that you really have to fight to get what you need. So what I advise people to do is say, you know, I'd like to have access to a palliative care team during my treatment, and then you can predict, you know, almost with 100% certainty that that doctor will say, oh, why, you don't need that, you're not dying. And then you say to them, well, actually, that's the old understanding of what palliative care is, the modern understanding of palliative care is a service that people get at the same time as they pursue disease treatment. And actually, the evidence suggests that people that get palliative care live longer than those who don't. So I'm not sure why you are recommending it. (laughs) Yes, I'm not not sure I understand why you're not offering this to all your patients. Um, And then you pull up, print something out from our getpalliativecare.org website and put it in front of them. But unfortunately, sometimes the patient has to teach the doctor. The family has to teach the doctor. But the bottom line is you have to advocate for yourself and your own experience with this treatment and illness. Um, yes. Let's let's come back to that after the break. That's so important. And so there are so many impediments to that that I'm hoping we can talk about how to reduce for people. Um, listeners, during the break, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, to find me. And to find Diane Meyer and her work, you can go to www.getpalliativecare.org. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Diane Meyer, who's advanced the use and effectiveness of palliative care 
uh, all across the country in in hospital settings and outside of hospital settings. And uh, we were talking, you were saying before the break, um, at the heart, you know, at the hardest time to advocate for yourself and demand palliative care access and make sure you get it. Uh, you've you've just got to do it. But I wanted to talk a little more about that because um, what I find is that people are quite frightened to challenge people who, at the moment, they consider to be holding their lives in their hands, mm-hmm. especially early in diagnosis, where you're referred to somebody. I find often people change oncologists later, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but typically people are referred to someone and they just do what they say for a while, right? you know, unless they're already kind of the type of person who questions things. Um, And so it's a very difficult thing we're talking about, actually, for Mm -hmm. um, people to push. What do you think could help? uh, What could reassure them that the person on the other end is there a way they could frame it that the person on the other end will not take offense or kind of lose, yeah, lose interest I in them? Something, I would say something like one of my friends or somebody in my family who went through cancer care was at a place where palliative care was part of the cancer care team and every patient got that kind of support at the same time as cancer care, and it really made a difference for them. I'm not sure if we have that available here. We, we're saying we, like I'm on, I'm on your side. Um, and let the doctor talk, and then when the doctor says, oh, you don't need that, you're not dying, um, the person then says, well, you know, my friend or my relative wasn't dying and is still alive now, um, and the palliative care really helped. So, you know, I I just wanted to let you know that um, uh, I think that that's going to be an important part of my care, and I'll just figure out how to find that kind of support in addition to the care that I'm seeking from you. And of I mean, course, it's, yeah, it's sorry, hard. go ahead. Um, but in general, I think as long as the, the doctor doesn't get the feeling that you're criticizing them or suggesting that what they're doing is wrong, but that, you know, just as you might go to your doctor and say you have a therapist or a massage therapist or you're doing Alexander technique or acupuncture, they're not going to be threatened by that, right? People do think. These days, 20 years ago when my wife died, they were. Yeah. (laughs) She she had to pick um, doctors on the basis of who would accept that she wanted to get acupuncture. Um. And it was limited number. But now I think it's much different, at least in our area and probably where you are as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so it's, I think people are used to patients pursuing other important elements of their life, whether it's psychotherapy or spiritual support or um, massage or other things that are going to help them get through a challenging time and that palliative care is similar. It's an added layer of support. So that shows the change. um, In my mind, that shows the change uh, in the direction we'd like to go um, between, you know, 20, 30 years ago and now. That sounds better to me. Uh, You know, like there's a little more... um, 
like the medical community is a little more educated about all the other things that might support people with serious illness. Yeah. Whether they're doing um, it themselves or they're not, huh? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, many cancer centers, not all, but many cancer centers have embedded palliative care teams in them that are right there, like in the same physical space. Right. Um, so Big that's help. something to ask about. Uh, at the front desk, do we have a um, care team in this cancer center? Um, I, I I went and watched. Uh, this is a little bit of a of a, a detour, a right turn. But I went and watched uh, the Bill Moyers, um, ser- the part of the series that he did years ago that you were a part of, and your colleague was um, talking with a a patient about her own end of life. And what I noticed was how open-ended all the questions were. Would that be a palliative care value, those open-ended questions about yeah. uh, what a person so, is yeah. actually after? <laughs> yeah. What their I mean, it's are? The, the core principle of palliative care is trying to understand who your patient and their family are as people and what matters most to them. And... Um, very often it's something like, I'd like to see my garden come up this spring, or um, I'd, I'd like to just spend a week on the beach with a big fat novel and forget about all this stuff for a while, or I'd like to see my grandson graduate from college. Um, people know that living forever is not an option. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that, even though doctors behave as if that is not the case. Um, but if you pause and say, what's most important to you? Is it, is it making it to the wedding? Is it taking a break from this treatment? Is it um, uh, uh, being spending time at home with your family? You can then weigh, is it worth going through, for example, fifth-line chemotherapy with a 1% odd of prolonging your life and a 100% likelihood of making you miserable? Mm. Um, if you've got, if you can weigh the pros and cons um, sure. against what's most important to you. And most, many people haven't thought about what's most important to them. And assume that what the doctor is recommending has already taken that into account. But the doctor is thinking only about what's the next chemo for this cancer. And that's why it's important to pause and think about what matters most to me, what do I care most about, what gives my life meaning, what things have I not done that are really important that I want to make sure to do while I still can. So, for example, one of my patients had been estranged from his son for 20 years. Had His son was in California. He was in New York. They hadn't spoken in 20 years. Mm. Now, this cancer diagnosis focused his mind that maybe he wouldn't have another 20 years to make this right because he was always putting it off later, another time, you know, because it's a big deal to reach out to someone that you are estranged from. And when I asked him what was most important to him, in the context of living with this cancer, he said, reconnecting to my son. Because that open-ended question helped him become conscious of what was really most important, which was, you know, not dying in the ICU without having connect, reconnected with his son. Yes. And so that, that you know, not that, that did not change his treatment regimen, and actually he is still alive today. 
But the fact that he got this diagnosis focused his mind in a way that he could start thinking about something other than going to work. And, um, you know, that the relationships with people he cared about were obviously of the greatest importance to him, as they are to most people. Um, I think that's so. I think that's an interesting story too because he was aware of the um of the loss in him before but right. I like the way you're putting it that it focused his mind to have a temporal relationship to it to right. to think he might not have much time to take care of it. Right. Well, we all live in the illusion that time is infinite, which is an illusion. Yes, um, And we all, you know, let the present go by because we think time is infinite. We live as if time is infinite. So a, di- a di- diagnosis of cancer is a very, very um, distressing message that time is not infinite and that it's up to us how we use the time we have. Nobody else is going to do it for us. And, of course, that's uh, what I discovered living next to someone else's death is that actually... Uh, my life got much more vibrant because, uh, and and still continues to be 20 years after her death because of asking those kind of questions of meaning and and importance and some of the other less important things as I came to feel cleared away yeah. a bit. Absolutely. So, I think so those the, of us who work in palliative care spend a lot of time uh, smelling the roses or try to, um, being with our family, doing adventurous things, um, savoring the moment, because we witness how unreliable that future moment could be. Yes, and how helpful it is to have someone asking the question, because it gives you permission to explore I, I I still thank every day the people who asked me, who opened those dialogues for me, even yeah. though I knew I needed to explore it. You need help with it. You need yeah. someone to be listening. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and also so th- to making the to saying to you, these are the important questions right now. Yes. Because there's a lot going on, and you're exhausted and stressed. And they're faceable. Uh, yeah. Which, which comes about in a tone of voice sometimes. Uh, that that um, the questions are answerable uh, sooner or later. Yeah, absolutely. So that just leads me to be so thankful for people who are doing the work you do. Um, many of whom I knew before I did this show, and many more I know since. Uh, just such a precious resource that we're having more and more and I'm so grateful for that in my life and in the lives of the people I work with me too (laughs) Uh, I want to thank you so much for being with me today Diane it's just really been an honor and a pleasure to talk with you and hear more about uh, your work the pleasure is all mine thank you for the important work that you do Thank you so much. And for you listeners out there, once again, to find out more about palliative care and Diane Meyer, go to the Center to Advance Palliative Care. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, you can go there or you can go to um, 
Could you repeat it? Because I've lost the reference yeah. in my little... It's, it's um, www.getpalliativecare, all one word, dot org. So getpalliativecare.org. Thanks. Next week, I'll welcome Robin Perry Braun, author of Believer's Guide to the Law of Attraction and 30 Days to Peace and Joy. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.